The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Today we come to what I think is a second postulate that has to be emphasized and say a Reformed church is a place where the supreme authority of Holy Scripture is observed. Now these first two things don't necessarily, I don't say they are things that only Reformed churches uh, observe. As the list goes down, it will become a little more particular or the circle will be drawn tighter, let's say. But uh, these are certainly requirements, absolutes that we stand upon, and truths that come to us out of the great reformation of the 16th century. This morning, I think there are more than one text I could make this uh, point from or, or explore this subject from, but I've chosen one in Isaiah chapter 55. I'll read verses 6 through 11, but 10 and 11 are the particular emphasis this morning. Isaiah 55 beginning at verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. This is God's own holy word. It was on April 18, 1521, several years into the formal period that we call the Reformation, that a lone monk stood on trial to defend himself at a place called Worms in what is Germany today. And he stood before Charles V, the ruler of the Holy Roman Empire, no doubt resplendent in furs and gold around his neck. Many princes of various principalities. We didn't have the countries that we have today, so there were many divisions and monarchs that ruled over different areas, and they were there, no doubt also in their robes of power. Also represented were bishops and representatives of the papacy in Rome, all to question and challenge the writings of one man. Some of that man's writings, they were there displayed and 
the accuser stood and read from some of them and presented various passages and said to this one man dressed in a plain monk's robe, no badges of office or gold to be seen on him. And Martin Luther answered the charges made to him that day because he was called on to recant. And really his life was in the balance in all of this, although he did escape from that time. But he could have been killed, depending on his answer to the questions that were given. And Luther famously said that day, unless I am convinced by the testimony of scriptures I have quoted, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Today is Reformation Sunday. On this day, we mark the anniversary of really what was an ecclesiastical earthquake that began in 1517, 496 years ago. If Jesus tarries, we'll have the opportunity to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation in a few years. Luther and many others, some famous and many not famous, brought about a Reformation revolution that brought Christianity back to its New Testament roots. Last week, I began asking the question of you, what is a Reformed church? What distinctives does such a church have today? And I told you that I believe the first answer was to say that Reformed churches strive to emphasize, as the Scripture does, the divine sovereignty, the sublime majesty, and the exalted glory of God. This is the first matter. And we looked at Romans 11, that great doxology on which Paul ends those 11 chapters of doctrinal development so that he's standing almost on a mountaintop at the end of that chapter exclaiming in praise to God, from him, through him, unto him, be all glory now and forever. He was exalting God as the source and the means and the goal of everything he had done in creation and in his providence working throughout history. When we try to think thoughts of God, I can tell you, you can never think a thought of your own creation that would be too large for God. Your problem is you're always thinking thoughts that are too small for him. You're trying to box him in and define him by things that reduce him in size to be a pygmy, idle God that is not the true God and who is unworthy of your worship and your exaltation. The main issue at stake in the Reformation, really what got it all started, was Luther discovering in Galatians and Romans that the the church was wrong on the whole issue of salvation. They were stressing works. They were stressing certain rituals and certain things done in obedience to the church when, in fact, he discovered the Scripture said salvation was by God's free grace, offering justification through faith in Christ as a gift without any price and without human performance involved. That was the primary issue, and I'll emphasize that somewhat uh, certainly next week, Lord willing. But there was another issue that quickly emerged, and that was the issue of the authority of the Bible. 
Because the minute you're going to say, this is true about God and this is not, someone is bound to say to you, how do you know that? On what basis are you saying that? And of course, Luther had to say, he answered that question, that God has plainly spoken about himself in the 66 canonical books that we call the Holy Bible. Books that form a living library, a unified book of written truth, although authored by 40 people across many centuries, a message that is alive and potent comes through that book that is spoken by revelation from God to men. It is not merely a human creation, and therefore we see in it a supreme authority for truth. A theologian living in our time, J.I. Packer, wrote this. He was a man who understood the Reformation well, and Packer said, what Luther asserted in his courageous stand shows the essential motivation of the entire Reformation movement, namely, that if God is to sovereignly rule, then the Word of God must be enthroned beside him and in the consciences and hearts of all men. What we find today is an age when people say, where's the power in the church? Where's the power in pulpits of the church? Why is there not the kind of ringing preaching that the Reformers brought or that an Edwards or a Whitfield or a Spurgeon and so many others were able to bring forth from the Word of God? What has happened to preaching? Where's revival? Well, one of the answers we give is to tell people that preaching tends to turn into little more than muted muttering when a full trust in the authority of Scripture as the breathed-out Word of God fades away, or when preachers substitute psychology or the tracing of cultural trends and social and political speculations for the splendid greatness of God's written Word, the unvarnished truth of God. The Reformation rediscovered this and accentuated afresh the authority of the Bible. It threw down the gauntlet to the tyranny of an ecclesiastical monarchy that had been established more than a thousand years, growing in its grasp upon people and its dogmas that turned aside so badly away from the Word of God. It showed that the Bible was not some book of dogma about God but that it was indeed the book of God, his own revelation of himself. God wonderfully speaks in his written word. Well, this Reformed view of the supreme authority of Scripture is something that logically follows upon a belief in the supremacy and sovereignty of God that I spoke about last time. If God is the absolute monarch of the universe, but he is hidden and he is mute and will not speak, then in what way can we possibly know him or ever praise him or follow him or be his disciples? Theologians used to talk about something given the Latin name Deus abscondus, the idea that that the God of great mystery, the God that absconded from being known. In other words, he hid himself as if to say, I'm too great a mystery for you to ever know me. Well, that's not the sovereign God that we were praising last week. 
For if God is sovereign, then men must know him and men must praise him. And if we would be able to do that, God must communicate. And he has. He has done that beyond all doubt. I have two main points for you today, and I begin with our text in Isaiah 55, but I'll move beyond it. But in this first point, I would say this is the theme or the summary. We hold that whatever Scripture says, God says. Whatever Scripture says, God says. I believe this is implicit in Isaiah 55, 10, and 11, one of many places that illustrates this truth. What you see here is Isaiah speaking from the Lord, especially in verse 10 and following, to talk about the power that is inherent in Scripture, in what God speaks. And it is compared here to rain and snow falling from the skies, which we know doesn't happen steadily or all the time. Sometimes it go, we go a long time without any rain, and then all of a sudden it comes in a deluge. But however it comes in whatever amount, both rain and the Word of God have a heavenly origin, and they both accomplish something. They have a result that they achieve an intended effect. You know, Isaiah might have used a different figure of speech. He might have spoken the way his companion prophet Jeremiah did in Jeremiah 23. He also was speaking about the Word of God when he said, Is not my word like fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock? Those are very violent images. And indeed, God's Word certainly can have that kind of an effect, a violent, powerful word like we witnessed in the giving of the commandments on Mount Sinai a few weeks ago. But here we have a different image, Isaiah 55.10, not a violent one at all, a very gentle one, rain, snow, falling on the earth, needed. Any farmer will tell you how much it's needed to nourish the ground. He has worked the ground. He has prepared the ground. He's put the seed in the ground, but he knows that without rain and snow from heaven, there'll be no crop. There'll be an arid desert, not a fruitful green land giving grain and corn and the things that support life. Rain brings growth. God's Word brings growth and life. I've I remember reading with fascination in the past, uh, probably National Geographic or someplace, about discoveries of seeds kept in jars in someone's tomb somewhere, a pharaoh's tomb or one of those places where they were all sealed up and kept from any moisture for hundreds of years. And along comes the archaeologist and takes the seed out and puts it in a little plot of ground and applies water, and it grows a seed that was waiting 500, 1,000 years to grow. The moisture comes and the life comes. I think this is what Hebrews 4.12 is talking about when it describes the Word of God there in the New Testament words as being quick and powerful, penetrating even into the thoughts and intents of our hearts to bring us alive to make life where there was deadness. God's Word is something irresistible in performing a God-intended task. We can't quite understand how it's happening, but it comes into us, it germinates, it works, and truth does its task. 
as it fills our souls with divine life, the same way that rain awakens a seed to grow. Well, the Word of God originates in His mind and comes to our minds. And we have a right to ask, how does that happen? Is God standing with a megaphone shouting things that we're supposed to hear? How does God's thought get to be our thought? The answer is, well, the theologian's given it a name. It's called inspiration. Inspiration covers the process by which God's Word becomes intelligible to us. And it really means simply breathing out. God breathing out His truth. And, of course, when we think of the breath of God, we think of the Spirit of God. And now we're into the realm of something rather mysterious. Certainly, God has given loud, visible, maybe even violent demonstrations where his message came forth, even sometimes on very rare occasions when an audible voice was heard. But most of the time, we know it's not like that. It's that matter of a still, small voice, the Scripture calls it. God working upon some author, whether it's Paul or Matthew or Isaiah or who it may be, through words and thoughts that this person in a very human situation, Paul writing a letter to a church or to Timothy to help support him as a pastor, and God taking the words and thoughts of a human being and transmuting them to be his own thoughts. He makes no man into a dictation machine. That's not how we believe it happens. The personality of the writer is there. Paul can write and say, hey, Timothy, bring my cloak and bring my parchments, a very human word about, you know, some little circumstance in his own life. And yet, within that same letter are immortal words used by the Holy Spirit to teach us salvation, to bring our souls alive. There's a mystery in the process of inspiration. If given ten sermons, I could not explain the process of inspiration. It is certainly mysterious. Second Peter chapter 1 compares it to the process of wind filling the sails of a ship. First Thessalonians 2.13 has Paul praising certain believers there in Thessalonica because he said they, quote, received the Scriptures not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God. It was a word from man, outwardly, but it was much more. It was God speaking through a human agent. Holy Scripture is a product of God's breath, His Spirit. And while we cannot solve that mystery for you completely to your satisfaction, we therefore say what Scripture says, God says. And once God has inspired it, once it is written, then we begin to use it and apply it and observe it and learn it, and we find something else, that this Scripture is not just breathed out by God, but that it bears in it a self-evident authority. I get to ask many people about their Christian experience, what we would call their testimony, our new members and others. I've literally asked hundreds of people to give that account to me since I've been pastor of this church. And just recently, I I don't honestly even remember right now who it was, but somebody, uh, I think it was one of our new members, was recounting to me. I said, well, how did you first, you know, encounter faith in Christ and so on? And this person gave a very surprising answer. He said, from reading the book of Proverbs. I said, really? 
That's an unusual answer. How did God get a hold of you by the book of Proverbs? Well, if I could condense the answer the person gave, I'm not giving his exact words, but I think he was saying to me, I saw the power and wisdom of God in the book of Proverbs. Something that I encountered there told me God is real, and he speaks. And it drew me into knowing his truth. And yes, Jesus Christ and the gospel of the cross and resurrection aren't displayed in the book of Proverbs. But nevertheless, this individual knew he wasn't simply reading a book of wise sayings by philosophers. He felt more like he had grabbed onto a high-voltage cable. And he was in touch with the truth that had to be from God. It was like a living thing. And if he had been asked, how would you prove the authority of the Word of God, he would say probably, because it stopped me cold in my tracks. And I knew it wasn't simply the Word of man. You know, we're often looking for ways to defend the Bible. There are whole books written about proofs and defenses of the Bible being more than just a human book, and they're worthwhile to look at facts like, for example, just the factor of fulfilled prophecy. There are scores of prophecies, hundreds of years old in the Old Testament, that have been fulfilled. They could not have been known how they would turn out or what would happen when they were written, and they were fulfilled precisely, many of them in Jesus Christ himself. That all by itself is a great defense of the Bible. But C.S. Lewis said one time, and I I really like to fall back on this, he said, you know, when we talk about defending the Bible, we might as well talk about defending a lion. All you have to really do to defend a lion is take the chain off his collar and turn him loose. He will defend himself quite ably. And isn't that true of the Word of God? It's a self-authenticating authority that is here. We don't have to line up 22 proofs that will say, oh, all right, after you say all those things, I guess I grudgingly admit that maybe this could be something more than just human. No, the book is alive. It takes hold of us like nothing else. As the Holy Spirit individually convicts our hearts, the Reformers would say to a man, the ultimate proof of the Bible is the Holy Spirit indelibly convincing each and every believer that this is God's own word. Thus says the Lord. Calvin, therefore, came to say a sentence that grabs some people, and and maybe they're not sure what to make of it at first, but Calvin said, we owe to Scripture the same reverence that we owe to God. Now, Calvin wasn't saying, I want you to have a God who's made of paper and leather and ink and thread stitched together. This is not your God, but you would not know your God if it were not for this. And therefore, we owe to this communication from God the same reverence we owe to Him, you see. If we would disobey God's Word, we're disobeying Him. If we scorn God's Word and repudiate it, we're repudiating Him. If we trust God's Word, we're trusting Him. If we love God's Word, we're loving Him. This is another way of saying whatever Scripture says, God says. Much more could be said about that whole subject, but I go on to the second point this morning. Secondly, to declare this, a Christian is a man or woman whose life is humbly submitted 
to the Word of God. Here I'm borrowing directly from J.I. Packer once again in his great book, I'm convinced one of the great Christian books of the 20th century, Knowing God. Packer has a chapter about Scripture in that and says many fine things, but I quote several sentences here that he spoke. He said, what is a Christian? He asked a question, what is a Christian? Well, he said, a Christian can be described from many different angles, but we can cover everything by saying a Christian is anyone who fully acknowledges and lives under the Word of God. A person who submits without reserve to the Word of God written, obeying its teaching, trusting its promises, following its commands, he said, this person's eyes are on the God of the Bible as his Father and the Christ of the Bible as his Savior. Now, of course, if you say, what is a Christian? You're going to say someone is trusting Christ as his Lord and Savior, and you'd be right. But Packer's saying, how do you ever come to know and trust Christ as your Lord and Savior? You get that from Scripture and from living in humble obedience and trust in the word that God has spoken. Sadly, there are many today who are able to give some kind of lip service or outward recognition of the honor of the Bible. You know, this is what we do in our court system when I don't know if they still in every place, they don't in many places, hold a Bible up and have people take a vow on it because, goodness gracious, that would offend somebody today. But uh, there are many people who would say, oh, I would, oh, I respect the Bible. It's a holy book. And they would never throw a Bible away in the trash or burn a, a Bible or let it fall in the mud. And they, oh, that's the Bible. But ask them if they really put their lives under the Bible and live in humble obedience to it. Ask them if they regard it as a book of sufficient truth to give them the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth that they need to live their lives before God. There are many people that say, oh, yes, the Bible, the Bible. But then they say, but wait a minute, that's not all I need. I need signs and wonders. I need dreams and visions. I need words of knowledge. I remember someone coming to this church telling me that they had departed a church they said, look, it, it got to be that the whole worship service was about somebody in the congregation receiving a word of knowledge, standing up saying, Pastor, I have a word of knowledge, and that person would have to be heard. And this individual said to me, it got to where the whole service was words of knowledge, so-called, and the Bible really went right out the door. Tragic. That's not what God desires for us. Do we really want to replace the Bible with man-made hocus-pocus in our worship? Perhaps you're the person who says, if only God would speak to me directly, individually. I've got a particular problem. It's not spelled out in, in Isaiah or Philippians or Matthew. I wish God would just speak. Well, Peter said a wonderful thing in 2 Peter 1.3, where he wrote that God has granted to us all we need for life and godliness through his very great and precious promises. All you need, it's here. Yes, it does not tell you to accept job A as opposed to job B or marry this woman as opposed to that woman or something else, but the principles and precepts that you need are here. 
and they can be applied along with prayer and study and waiting on the Lord. He will apply his word to your life. He speaks in such a way that that song we used briefly in the earlier part of the worship today is something you need to hear again and again. What more can he say than to you he has already said? God has spoken in a sufficient way. Now, remember that phrase of Luther when he said, my mind is held captive to the word of God. If that is true of you, then the consequence will be that you can stand like Luther did in some place in your life and say, here I stand, I can do nothing else. God help me. His word is spoken. I must stand there. A month or more ago, I spoke two different sermons to you from Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, and we were talking about the very difficult subject of the delusion of homosexuality and what God's Word spells out about it. Not that people should be unduly condemned for some sin that is different than any other sin, but the Scripture says their minds are darkened and they're, they're really undergoing a great identity problem. Now, there are people in our society who, first of all, have never encountered those truths from Scripture, and so they would make up what they think is right about the issue of homosexuality based on human reason. And they say, I don't think God has anything to say about that. Why didn't He just create us to be what we feel we should be? And then someone opens Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 and works through that with them, hopefully in a compassionate way. And the person might say, oh, I never saw that before. And then they might say, did God really say that? Oh, I don't think he meant that. And they would then reject it. Well, Christian, we're living in times when we must answer challenges left and right, not only on that question, but many others, where God has spoken. And the church, somehow in the interest of being nice or non-controversial or something, is ready itself to say, did God really say that? We have to say, yes, he really did. And we must stand upon his word. Yes, we must have compassion. Yes, we don't condemn people. Christ is ready to receive that person. But God's word is the beginning of their transformation and the truth they have to hear. Well, I may have tired you out this morning on Reformation Sunday with quotes from the great reformers. Be patient for two more, and then I'll close. Luther, once more, had so much to say about the Word of God. Luther said, A man's word is but a little sound that flies into the air and soon vanishes. But the Word of God is greater than heaven and earth, greater than death and hell. It's the power of God that endures everlastingly. It will do, Isaiah said, what God has determined it will do. From John Calvin, this quote. He said, The principle that distinguishes our religion from all others is this. Argue with me if you will, but I'm with Calvin. The principle that distinguishes our religion from all others is this. We know God has spoken to us. The prophets did not speak of themselves, Calvin said, but as organs of the Holy Spirit, uttering what they had been commissioned from heaven to declare. God has spoken. He's spoken with 
a mysterious, wonderful power to get inside our brains and our hearts and all the parts of us that make decisions and, and are capable of worship to achieve in us a great thing, changing us from our natural rebellion, our guilt, our shame, bringing us in the message he speaks a strong detergent contained in the blood of Christ to cleanse us, to literally break the power of death and hell. So, folks, I say to you today, in the words of Hebrews 12, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, even our God. And our Father, I ask you that as part of the Reformation you would do in our day, we all take our stand upon your word. That you would change us, even your people of faith in Jesus, to love your word more, to learn it better, to memorize it, to walk in it, to take our stand upon it, to interpret life through its lens, and to be unafraid when its truth is on our side. Help us, O God, for men today are hungry not for bread alone, but for every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. May they hear that word in us and through us. For Jesus' sake, amen.